This is the MRC podcast number 39, coming to you from the Mentis Research Centre in Sydney. Welcome to the MRC podcast from me, Nick Cater. I'm Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. Our conversation today again returns to COVID-19 and the cultural turmoil sweeping around it. At times like this, you find yourself craving the wisdom of hindsight. Where does all this fit in the broad sweep of human history? My guest today is Daniel Hannan. You might remember him as a Euro MP who very eloquently argued the case against Britain staying in the European Union and thereby argued his way, if you like, out of a job. Daniel has a special ability to bring context into his analysis of current events. He's somebody who studied history and studied the history of human thought. In 2013, Daniel published a book called Inventing Freedom, and its subject matter seems very pertinent right now at a time when much of the world seems to be lurching towards a more authoritarian style of government. Dan joins me now from the UK. Dan, welcome to the MRC podcast. It's always a great pleasure to be with you, Nick, my mate. Do you miss those trips to Brussels? Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, there are some things about Brussels that I miss. You know, it was, it was a lovely town in many ways, and I had lots of friends there, and, you know, my, my girls were there when they were very small, so every, every cafe, every street corner is kind of haunted by happy ghosts. But I do not miss the European institutions one bit. I think we are better off out And frankly, I think the European Union is better off without us in. Daniel, you wrote a very thorough and convincing account of the freedom, the particular peculiar kind of freedom that arose in that wet, damp islands which you now occupy and spread around the world. Can you just give me a a taste of what that freedom is and what makes it so distinctive? Well, I think the really extraordinary, unique thing about the individualist cultures that Australians and Brits, and indeed now most people in the Western world, have become used to, is quite how freaky it is, quite how exceptional by historical standards. You know, we're a species which evolved in kin groups, in tribes. We have, if you like, collectivist genes. And for most of the last 10,000 years since there's been agriculture, We've lived in various states of tyranny and slavery, right? That's been the normal condition for most members of our species for most of the time since there has been anything that you could call a civilization. And I wonder sometimes whether we in in open liberal democracies, democracies that have elevated the individual above the collective, that have elevated the rules above the rulers, have, have got something that you can call the rule of law, aren't living through a kind of weird blip you know, the, it feels almost as though we're in the interglacial, you know, and, and, the, and the, 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 the frozen ice age is on either side of us and that that is the more normal, natural condition of humankind. And one of the things, listening to your introduction, that this, this whole ghastly response to the epidemic has reminded us of is how easily people surrender their freedoms and then how reluctant they are to take them back again as, as long as you... Uh, as long as you have an argument of necessity, of, of emergency, people will put up with the most extraordinary abuses of what used to be regarded as their most basic civil rights. You wrote in your book that Australia is the philosophy of John Stuart Mill made flesh. Do you have any cause to revisit that in light of the 
events in Victoria where the Premier is doing undemocratic, extra-parliamentary things on the pretext of solving this pandemic. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I stand by I stand by what I said in general, right? I mean, Australia, compared to almost any other country, has tended to be on the side of the angels when it counts, right? Uh, most countries have have patchy records, but if you if you look at the times when there's really been a a contest between uh, civilizations that value freedom and civilizations that value collectivism. Australia is in that pretty short list of countries that was on the right side every time in the, in the two wars, in the, in, the, in the Cold War and so on. Uh, and even now, with the whole world going through an authoritarian spasm in response to the, the COVID epidemic, uh, Australia, I think a lot of countries would still gladly swap their problems for yours. But that said, you know, the fact that even in Australia, or at least even in uh, a, a big populous Australian state, people will not only tolerate, but will actually demand these extraordinary crackdowns and diminutions of their liberty is, again, a reminder of how fragile, how precious, and in many ways, how artificial an open society is. You know, it's... Um, it, the, the idea that personal freedom is an inalienable right, you know, for the last few hundred years, we've taken that for granted, but most of the world doesn't think that way. Our ancestors didn't think that way for most of the time that they were thinking. And it may well be that people will look back on the last 300 years as a kind of libertarian blip in the otherwise much more autocratic pattern of government. One of the warning signs for me is, is the sort of changing role of the police. We inherited, I think, that tradition uh, which developed in Britain in the early 19th century, the idea that the police are citizens in uniforms, that they apply the law by consent. It's not enforcement. And I'd always known that intellectually. I think now I kind of see what happens once the police are, are out there. I mean, we have a, we have a, a coronavirus enforcement division in the Victorian police now, whose job it is to go around, you know, the stuff. Yeah. Make sure people have got masks on. They have the power to enter people's homes now uh, without a warrant. They can seize anything they want, destroy anything they want. Suddenly, it seems to me uh, the police have jumped way beyond the idea of applying the law by consent. Yes. I mean, there was something I thought rather symbolic when we had the the statue smashing protests here two months ago, and indeed around the world. Uh, one of the, I mean, yeah, you, could, you could make quite an interesting competition of what is the stupidest statue that they, you know, from their point of view that they attacked? Was it Abraham Lincoln? Was it, you know, Winston Churchill? <laughs> but I think you could make a case for the most bizarre uh, statue to vandalize being that of Robert Peel, who, who was the guy who came up with the concept of the, of the copper as a policeman, as a, as a citizen in uniform. And, and this, this idea that we've, we've had ever since in, in Britain and the countries which copied our policing tradition, that, you know, the copper is not some licensed agent of the state, that he, he has no more powers than you or I do, except insofar as those powers are temporarily and contingently bestowed on him by a magistrate. Now, the world over, we have seen abuses of police power. In this country, we had in the early days, police, you know, telling people to get out of their own gardens, uh, you know, stopping them from from loitering or walking too slowly in parks, 
uh, in one case, ticking someone off for buying items that they thought were, were unnecessary and were too luxurious. And then the moment that people came out en masse to demonstrate for Black Lives Matter, suddenly, literally falling to their knees before it. And I think that was a real change because it was such a it was such an obvious political move. You know, we had but the, the thing that really triggered the, the statue uh, smashing episode, the iconoclasm here was the attack on a statue in Bristol where the, the local coppers just watched it happen didn't make any attempt to, to defend property or, or enforce the law. And afterwards, the superintendent said, well, you know, it's been a very problematic uh, thing for a lot of the black community. Here. Well, yeah, you know, I, I accept that it probably was. But that is not a decision for a middle ranking superintendent to make. Right. I mean, that, that that's why we have democracy is why there's a Bristol City Council. And what we saw there, I'm afraid, was our police and similar things that happen around the world, seeing which way the wind was blowing and lining up with, let's say, the intellectual elites, you know, the, the, the universities, the BBC, the politicians, etc. Not with the ordinary population, which was always in favour of law and order uh, and, in, and indeed in favour of statues. But it, it's, uh, it, it was, I thought, a very sad moment and something I hadn't really expected to see. That we, we went from this extreme authoritarianism one day to this sudden permissiveness, provided that you were demonstrating in favor of Black Lives Matter. God help you if you demonstrated against the lockdowns, then you would feel the full force of the law. Just jump continents for a second, because I think there's a, a common theme here with what we've seen in Hong Kong, which uh, uh, I regard really as the frontier, the frontier for freedom right now. I think the role of the police there has been crucial, right? Early on in those big protests, the police were there, you know, with nothing more than a truncheon and a notebook, you know, just, just making sure everybody was keeping off the grass, it seemed to me. And then over the space of about six months, the whole police force became transformed into a sort of almost paramilitary unit. Yes, I mean, it, it was, you know, obviously it was another, like the Australian and British police, it, it was a police force founded in the same tradition. And I think there's been a real change just in the last few months. Up until now, China has been pretty careful about observing the letter, if not the spirit, of the 1984 Accords, right? They, the PLA soldiers in Hong Kong didn't leave their barracks. The, if you like, approximations of policy with China were always driven by pro-Beijing politicians in Hong Kong. So they were technically legal. There was no abuse of the actual treaty until now. I, I think the, the imposition of the security law, I mean, it's pretty obvious listening to it, that even Carrie Lam had had nothing to do with the drafting of it. And I think Hong Kongers now sense that they are going to be treated like Uyghurs or Tibetans or Falun Gong or any other kind of uh, suspect group. And the evidence of how quickly that can change, that, that on the morning that that new law was promulgated, we had, as you say, these, these previously quite uh, correct, benign, well-behaved coppers, you know, arresting people for holding up placards, including one nine-year-old girl. I mean, it, it is scary how quickly that can happen. And I think coming out of this crisis, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be unpleasant for people of a, uh, a liberal free market bent. A lot of our own societies are going to be more big government, more author authoritarian, you know, 
more indebted. But there is also going to be a big geopolitical change in that power will have shifted to these dictatorial regimes and above all to China. I think what's happening in China has illustrated for me at least more than anything the, the profound truth which you wrote about, which is, you know, the, the, the idea of freedom that came from Britain. Nobody is above the law. Even the monarch is not above the law. That society's strength comes from the bottom up, not from the top down. This seems to be what is what exactly people are protesting against in Hong Kong. People talk about but democracy. Uh, they have a form of democracy, but even under the British, they had a, a pretty imperfect form of democracy. It's not so much the vote at the ballot box. It's how right. they order their civil society. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. It's this very basic principle that the rules are above the rulers. In other words, that the people in office don't get to make things up as they go along. And again, we, we take that for granted, but it doesn't come naturally, right? People have to be taught that. Uh, the, the much more intuitive position for, for most people, the kind of gut feeling that most people will have about this is, oh, well, as long as they're doing the right thing, who cares, you know? And again, we see even in really advanced, developed liberal countries like yours and mine, how quickly people lose interest in process when they happen to favor the outcome. You know, I mean, you see this very clearly, for example, in the run up to the US election, right? Uh, Donald Trump has very plainly and, you know, without even really disguising what he's doing, exceeded his powers in order to trespass into areas that are supposed to be reserved for the legislature in order to pass certain decrees on, you know, unemployment benefit, on student finance, on repossessions and so on. I mean, the, the, the measures themselves may be unexceptional, but there was no question. And he more or less admitted in justifying it that he was doing it because Congress hadn't acted. The interesting thing was that the Republicans who had screamed blue murder when Obama did similar things over immigration policy, suddenly said, oh, yeah, but Obama did something similar. <laughs> and, well, yeah, and, you know, their argument at that time was no president should do this. Suddenly they've shifted to, well, it's OK for our guy to do what their guy did. Now, that second position is the more intuitive one for most people, right? That's the scary thing. It, it accords with people's rough sense of fair play. We're only doing what they did. But it is utterly incompatible with an open society. And once people start thinking that it's okay for your guy to do things because his, his, his heart's in the right place and, and they're good things and it doesn't really matter if he cuts a few corners, then you cease to be a country like Australia or Britain and you become a country like Syria or Zimbabwe, right? And, and those historically have been the much more normal way of running things. It goes to the very delicate balance, doesn't it, in, in democracy? I mean, for a time we thought we could go around the world with the Americans and just put ballot boxes in schools in the most uh, formerly despotic countries and expect democracy to take over. Well, well, it's hard, though, to get across the subtleties of democracy, isn't it? Like the fact that just because you win an election, you can't lock up your opponent. Well, this is it. This is it. I mean, you, you made the point brilliantly a second ago with reference to Hong Kong, right? Hong Kong had the rule of law, but not democracy. And that is, if, if you've got to pick one or the other, that is definitely the one to go for, because democracy without the rule of law will turn into mob rule and very quickly descend into tyranny, whereas the rule of law without democracy will, over time, be durable and should eventually uh, develop into a more representative form of government, as was happening in Hong Kong before the Chinese took over uh, uh, and interfered. So, but, you know, it, 
again, think of the double standards here. Think of the, the howls of protest uh, and the accusations of, of tyranny and so on when Viktor Orban declared a state of emergency, which, by the way, has now ended, right? He's restored the, 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 the previous constitution, right? Did the people screaming blue murder when he did that complain when the same thing happened in Melbourne on a much longer timescale? Did they complain when even more stringent measures were applied in New Zealand, where they're now saying you will be taken to a quarantine facility and kept there until you agree to take the test, right? Of course not, because, oh, you know, Jacinda Ardern's on the left, she's female, she means well, she's got a baby. And people are, you know, displaying that classic human inability to, to care about the process itself, rather than starting with which is my team. The police... Stay with the police. So what on earth is happening in the United States? Talk about the changing role of the police. I mean, there's a strong movement on there to abolish the police, essentially. What do we make of that? Yeah, I mean, a, a movement supported by everyone except the general population, right? I mean, supported by all the talking heads and, and the, the, the groveling corporates and, uh, you know, CNN and, and the, the Democratic politicians and the mayors, by everyone except the actual populations, especially uh, the black populations are the areas that have been most touched by the unrest. If there's one thing that's going to put Trump in, it's going to be that overreach and, and the ensuing uh, civil disorder. Voters absolutely hate it, you know. And the one thing that I learned in my 21 years uh, in politics is that the silent majority is almost always bigger than anyone realises. And it will include, I'm pretty, I don't know, I can't prove this, but I, all my instincts tell me that it will include a large number of black American voters, right, who, whose first instinct when they see young crowds, including lots of, of white BLM protesters smashing things up, their first instinct will be, where the hell are their parents? You know, um, why don't they, why are they coming and smashing up my neighborhood? And if the, I, I think Donald Trump has done a lot of things wrong. He's, he's, uh, he's done a lot of things that, if you like, he deserves to lose because of. But the one thing that might get him across the line is this fear of cities going up in flames, which, if you like, will make the, the middling voter, the undecided voter, much Trumpier. It will make everyone more, more Trumpier because, you know, people... people absolutely detest the idea of property rights being insecure because there is no enforcement. And when they hear, you know, Democratic mayors and politicians saying, get rid of the police, they understand. In fact, a lot of the, the traditional Democrats understand better than anyone what would be the immediate outcome if you were to, to pursue that line. You and I love the internet, of course. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do this for <laughs> technology. But, but, you know, I mean, one of the things, of course, is we're increasingly in these polarized sort of search bubbles. You know, you, you, one person will call up BP on their computer and they'll get a threat to the environment. Their neighbor will call it up and they get investment opportunity. Right. Yeah. So but the consequence of that is I find it very hard now to sometimes fathom the thinking on the progressive left, particularly over this Black Lives Matter, which just seemed to come out of the blue and became global in about, you know, two nanoseconds. What, what's, what do you make of it? I'll tell you what, Nick, the, 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 the most foolish column I've ever written, the stupidest article 
I've written. And, and I'm sure my critics will tell you that it's a very crowded field and there are plenty of others to choose from. But I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure this one is still ahead by a length or two. It was at the very beginning of the epidemic, uh, in, in mid to late March, when I wrote a, a Telegraph column saying, this will be the end of identity politics. You know, it will all seem so unbearably petty and trivial now because we've got a real thing happening. And there's going to be mass unemployment and, and people are going to care about who's going to start the economy again. And no one's going to give two hoots about whether the epidemiologists are white men. And, and, and when there's mass unemployment, no one's going to care about the gender pay gap. They're only going to care about people being in work. And so, boy, did I get that wrong. Right. And the reason I got it wrong is I had underestimated the extraordinary religious fanaticism with which the woke cleave to their ideals. It's, it's become a real cliche to say that it's a religion. Uh, and and, and it, it, it's a good metaphor in the, in the most basic sense, the point that Jonathan Haidt keeps making, that the ideas associated with identity politics have been sacralized in the sense that they've been lifted out of the sphere of rational debate. So that if, if somebody disagrees with the woke, they invite not disagreement, but disgust you know, and, uh, and, and loathing. But one of the interesting religious parallels is how plagues or other ap apocalyptic events always make people more religious. And I just happened before the, the COVID thing to have read Tom Holland's book, Dominion, which is this, this wonderful history of the sort of thought of Christianity. And there's a lot of statue smashing in there, right? And one of the repeated themes is people responding to bad things by smashing statues in a, in a, a bid for purity. Uh, for example, there was a plague in, in Siena uh, in, the, in the 14th century, and, and the people in, in the town went and, and pulverized this statue of Venus because they thought that that was uh, demonic and, and that if they, if they only got rid of the statue, they would be cleaner and purer and, and, and everything would, would work better. You know, if we think that we've changed psychologically since those days, uh, the, the past six months have taught us rather better, right? What we've seen is a, a purity spiral, people reaching after more and more extreme forms of religious devotion, even in the US, literally self-flagellating like, like medieval uh, penance, you know, penitence, um, uh, 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 excommunicating people who disagree, declaring kind of crusades and so on. And, I'm afraid that this perceived external threat of the of the, the pestilence has driven people into what future historians will recognize as a moment of religious fanaticism, but with the religion not being a belief in the transcendental, but rather being this perverse form of identity politics that, of all bizarre things, calls itself anti-racist, when, of course, it's based more than any other ideology in the world now on making everything about accident of physiognomy and ethnicity. It's, it's the most backward looking of all creeds. And one of the, the oddest things is that the intellectuals who got it going, the, the people who laid the foundations for it on campus before it spilled out, uh, call themselves and are called postmodernists, meaning you know that they, they think that truth is not objective, but is a product of power or, or of, of hierarchy. Actually, a much better word for them would be pre-modernist because they are reverting to the pre-enlightenment idea that 
what counts is not whether something is objectively true or can be empirically proved, but what counts is whether you like the person saying it, whether they are from an approved category. And it's a terrifying thing how quickly we can strip away the reason, the logic, the scientific method, all of those uh, rational processes that made the Enlightenment and made the modern world possible. It's a frightening thought to have, but we do seem to be drifting quite quickly away from the values of the Enlightenment. You know, the idea that we could understand the world through observation, through the scientific method, and that through that we could gain technologies that would improve our lives for better and better and better. Now, that seemed to shift for me, I think, around about uh, 1967 uh, or the 69, perhaps, with the moon landing and, and Woodstock following straight after that. And you suddenly got this feeling straight to the surface that we're on the eve of destruction. I wonder if now our culture has moved so much in that direction that we're seeking out things to be anxious about. We're seeking out millennial events. You know, we're, we're overdoing the climate change narrative and now this pandemic is an existential threat, if you like. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's new. I mean, what you say is true, but I don't, I don't think it's new. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it started in, in the 60s. I think human beings are programmed to, to pessimism because we are designed for a much more dangerous world than this one. And our early hominid ancestors, if they were uh, cheerful, optimistic, trusting souls, were less likely to survive and pass on their genes than the ones who were scared and uh, anxious and, and suspicious. And, and we carry the, the grumpy, suspicious genes of the survivors. So, I, I, you know, there is a long, uh, indeed, immemorial record of people expecting the worst and then being pleasantly surprised by by progress. What I think is new, or at least is new, you know, in, in modern times, <clears throat> is that the thing, the, 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 the breakthrough on which all of those technical advances rested, or at least the, the mass acceleration of them in the last couple of hundred years, was empiricism, was this idea, this, again, this idea that, that is, is quite counterintuitive, that, you know, we're all quite ignorant, and that uh, people we don't like might still have useful things to teach us and that an idea can be true regardless of the merits of the person from whom you hear it, right? None of these is an idea that comes naturally. If they sound natural to you or to the people watching, it's because we've been taught it in schools. But increasingly, we're not taught it. In fact, increasingly, schools and particularly universities are teaching the opposite. Instead of teaching the difficult counter-cyclical idea that you know, we're all individuals, free inquiry is the way to find the truth, let lots of different clashing ideas get out there and the, uh, the best ones will, will rise. The universities, the, the places that should be temples of enlightenment values, are the ones disseminating the old pre-modern idea that, no, 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 the only thing that matters about you is that you are a heterosexual white man or whatever, and that everything about you, therefore, is defined by these kind of tribal or or physical categorizations. And, you know, sure enough, that is how that is how society worked for a long time. People were tribal, they divided into us and them and so on. It's so bizarre, though, that the comeback should be coming through the institutions that were set up to disseminate the idea of science and reason. Daniel, we have to return, of course, to Britain and Brexit, since you were one of the thought leaders uh, that led the country round, I think, to the realization being part of Europe was a very bad idea. We, we often re 
ask the question, how, how will Britain survive outside the EU? We'd never ask the question, how will the EU survive without Britain? I mean, the, the, the truth is that the events of the past six months, uh, the lockdowns, the fears and the, the reluctance to return to work on both sides of the channel, uh, have made the pros and cons economically suddenly seem very small. So, you know, if you if you go from the most optimistic Brexiteers predictions of all the things that will happen when we have our trade deal with you and New Zealand and so on, through to the worst fears of the most anxious Ramonas about the total destruction, that that spectrum from best to worst is still tiny compared to the 20 percent fall in GDP that we've just seen, which which is totally off the scale. You know, that's uh, that's going to be the central fact of politics. Now. We, we, we've got this debt. We're all going to have to get used to not being able to afford things that we could afford before. Uh, we're going to have to get used to unemployment again. And so suddenly the economic consequences of Brexit, I think, have been slightly overtaken by events. It's revealing in one sense. Uh, I've been struck by how many people who up until March were saying, uh, you know, Brexit is so costly. And how can you even take the risk? And, and we can't afford it. And so are now so totally blasé with measures that they know will be a hundred times more expensive and more economically damaging. Which makes me realise that their concern was never really economic at all. It was a, it was a cultural one. It was what you wrote about in your book. It was the, you know, the, 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 the British equivalent of the, of the snotty Australian uh, intellectual elites who need to, to cling to these uh, identity issues as a way of distinguishing, distinguishing themselves from everyone else. But they... You know, they, they, obviously they couldn't admit that. So they pretended that it was all about a concern about GDP. They've now revealed themselves to be utterly uninterested in policies that will, will stimulate growth and, and jobs. Uh, you know, when everything has eventually died down, when world trade resumes, when people go back to work, when things reopen, uh, the dust has settled, I have no doubt that Brexit will be seen to have been a right and correct decision, because it is a reorientation by a global country away from a, a dying and economically dwindling part of the world towards the teeming markets overseas. And interestingly, one thing that was happening anyway, but that the, the crisis, I think, has accelerated is uh, there's more of what you and I are doing now, right? There's, there's, there's less uh, importance attached to geographical proximity. People are not having to go into an office to make a pitch anymore. A lot more stuff is online. And when that happens, I think people will realize that accident of geography no longer matters, that cultural proximity is what really counts. Uh, and Britain as a, uh, an international English-speaking common law country will find itself in much more comfortable company. By the way, I'm, I'm particularly encouraged, I'm sure you know, um, Australia and New Zealand is, is the, the, are going to be the first trade deals we, we sign. I think that was always always obvious because it, it's so easy, right? I mean, we, 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 we've got the same standards, the same educational system, the same qualifications, same legal system, same accountancy methods that, that work. So it's, it's easily done. But I'm also really encouraged that just after Australia and New Zealand, the next priority is the rest of the Pacific. So we've got a, a, a quite advanced and so far they're going really well uh, trade talks in place with Japan. Um, that, that might 
strike people as a bit odd because the EU has only just concluded a free trade agreement with Japan. It, it, you might think, why is why why doesn't Britain just roll over, you know, inherit if you like the EU one, and then and then concentrate on places with whom we don't have trade deals through the EU, such as Australia? And the answer is, the EU Japan trade deal is actually pretty rubbish from a British point of view. It, it was very heavily dominated by agrarian and heavy industrial interests in continental Europe. It doesn't really do the things that we're good at and that the Japanese are also good at, you know, uh, financial services, legal services, uh, you know, advanced mechanisms for investor protection, data flows, etc. So we're going to have a much better deal with Japan. And I'm delighted to say we are applying to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the, the CPTPP, as it's now known. Now, Australian uh, viewers of, uh, or listeners to your podcast may be wondering whether that isn't slightly uh, geographically challenging since, since the UK is not a Pacific country, uh, except in the technical sense that we own Pitcairn. So we, are, we just scrape <laughs> in. However, you know, we do have exceptionally close links, obviously, to Australia, to New Zealand, uh, to Canada, to Singapore, Malaysia, to a number of the other uh, Anglophone and common law countries in the region. And this is where the action is. You know, this is this is going to be uh, j just like there was a, a shift a couple of hundred years ago from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic. This century, the shift has been from the Atlantic to the Pacific and, and Britain needs to be there. And, and I'm I've absolutely no doubt that Brexit will be seen as the beginning of a, a timely, indeed an overdue reorientation to those global markets. But it does make a lot more sense now, I think, doesn't it, in the light of what's happening in China. Not only do we need to diversify our trade, but we need, if possible, to trade with people who play by the same rules. Well, especially when you are an advanced economy with a big services sector. You know, trade, I mean, sure, wine is a part of trade, it's an important part for, for the, the bits of Australia that are producing this excellent wine. But, uh, you know, also there, which is where it's much easier to deal with countries with a, a, an interoperable regulatory model are, you know, the legal services, the financial services, higher education, all of these things. And, and that's, that's where the growth is. You know, there's, there's a limit to how many people can drink, uh, you know, to how much wine any of us can drink, even, even uh, remarkably good Australian Shiraz or whatever, right? Um, but there is, an, there is an immense growth in services uh, from which Australia and the UK are both poised to do well. And, you know, I'd love us, for example, to have effectively uh, fintech and uh, and indeed wider digital neutral recognition. I'd, I'd love that. I'd love us to have a kind of effective single market there. And I'm glad to say that we are well on the way towards negotiating one. Daniel, it's terrific to have you uh, be able to talk to you uh, this way. And uh, one of the things I'm really looking forward to when the when the border closures end is to get you back in Australia. So at it. God, pining, pining for it. I mean, I tell you, I'm actually literally under house arrest as we speak, not for being a Eurosceptic, which I always half thought would, would be how it ended up, but actually almost for the opposite reason, because I was in France a couple of weeks ago uh, uh, and we are now required to self-isolate. Literally, you can't even go out to walk the dog for 14 days. Uh, so I'm dreaming of the warm red earth and varied landscapes down under. Thank you, Daniel. Good to, good to talk to you. Thanks, Nick.
You've been listening to the MRC podcast with our special guest, Dan Hannon. If you'd like to become one of the growing number of people who support this free content, then why not subscribe to the Menzies Research Centre? You can do so at menziesrc.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening. Thank you.